Every so often, an episode comes along that blows my mind. What is money? Is money physical or spiritual? How does Judaism view money different than the rest of the world? Meet Reb Simon Jacobson, hundreds of thousands of followers on YouTube. He has advice and guidance for those who want to better themselves with money. He sprinkled in amazing stories. We spoke about money. Then we followed up by money. And then we capped the entire conversation off talking about money. Enjoy the ride. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. A special edition of Kosher Money, we have with us in studio the great Rabbi Simon Jacobson. I'm sure many people pronounce it Simon, but today it's Simon Says. Okay. Simple Simon Says. Simple. Okay. That's according to you, maybe, but not, not for the world. And uh, you've done a tremendous job disseminating your content uh, across the world on YouTube, millions of views. And my opening question, what is money? That's it. Three words. What is money? You know, in Yiddish, there's an expression they say, gelt, which is money in Yiddish, is the same gematria, the same number as blota. Blota in Yiddish is mud. So if you asked a Yiddish satirist, a comedian, he would say it's like mud, which means it can muddy you up. You know, in the words of the Gemara, the Talmud says that money is like on the ground, it, uh, the yakuma shebiraglaim is the expression. It's like the foundation, but it's beneath the ground like the mud. But on the other hand, without money, a person can't really uh, do anything in this world. So there's a paradox about money. You can't live without it. And when you have it, it often becomes a noose around your neck and creates many, many problems. But like they say about love, you can't live with it, you can't live without it, you know? But I'd like to give a take, a little more spiritual take, if I may. I'm going to quote the Tanya, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi's Tanya. He says that money is soul energy, soul energy. And I recently saw it actually in a secular financial book. They called it soul energy. Not from the Tanya, because it represents for us, at the end of the day, everything that we invest in, our ingenuity, our time, our energy, our creativity. And that's why money is, is more symbolic than it is just the cash part of it. It represents everything that I've built in my life. And as such, he calls it chaya nefesh, chaya nefesh. So it's like soul money, soul energy rather. So it's more than just purely the dollars and cents. It represents, as I said, energy, the energy of a person. And like all energy can go both directions. If you use it right, you can build tremendous things. If you use it wrong, it becomes the root of all greed and selfishness. Most people don't think of money as spiritual, right? Money is a currency, it's a physical. Yeah, we can put it into a bank account and then trade it digitally. But ultimately, wouldn't one say it's a physical item? Well, look, you know, in physics today, we know after Einstein's most famous formula, E equals MC squared, where he said that matter and energy are reversible, that everything physical is really energy. Like, for example, a physical object is filled with tremendous amount of molecular and uh, atomic power, except we don't see it. 
Uh, think of uh, you burn a piece of wood in the fireplace. The wood turns into energy. So everything really is energy. Everything physical. Um, a human being, we have a body, but a body without a soul is a corpse. So let me th let's put it this way. Imagine there was all the money in the bank, billions and trillions of dollars, but there are no human beings. Then what would it be worth? Nothing. What's money without life? However, once we have it, we sometimes worship it as if it replaces life itself. You know, the classic golden calf, worshiping it like God, because people think with money you can do everything. But money essentially is energy. It's a form of energy. It's ability to buy things. It's ability to wield power and control. So I would say everything is really energy. And money, maybe because it's so, uh, it's so powerful, is probably the most amount of energy. That's why, again, I say that it can go both directions, like every energy can go. It just, yes, it takes on the shape of physical currency. Today, it's digital. I mean, it's not even amount the amount that you, it's, it's just numbers that you have acquired and accumulated. And when you add credit into the picture, what is credit exactly? Think about it. Is it imaginary money? You know, credit means that you have a certain amount of cash, so you'll be given a line of credit a lot more than you actually acquire, actually possess. And many people question, what does that mean exactly? Can the United States ever go bankrupt, for example? And it could have trillions of dollars of deficit. No, none of us could tolerate such deficit. So you see money is much more symbolic than just purely what I have, what I don't have. You know, maybe life once upon a time, I had a sack of potatoes. I traded for a bushel of wheat or a bushel of, uh, of rice. Then it was a physical commodity. But today it's, it takes on a whole new shape. And I think energy is a very good word to use because that's what it does, it generates energy. So I'm looking at money. There's a spiritual side to money and a physical side to money. Yep. When I'm looking at that with a line down the middle, should I blend the two in some capacity? Should I keep them separate? I go to work, it's my work. When I do spiritual things, it's spiritual. Or is there a bigger vision for money? That's a great question. I just broadened the question in the, in the context, it's really, we have two dimensions to everything in our life. I mentioned body and soul. We have the physical part of our lives. We need to eat, drink, sleep, exercise. And then we have spiritual needs. They may be religious needs, faith, values, love, search for truth. For a, a Jewish person, it's the commitment to Torah and mitzvot. mitzvot. And uh, we all have, know there's a struggle between the two. You know, Should you give more time at work or go home to be with your family? who doesn't have the struggle between family and career, or your own personal standards, and then the standards of the marketplace. Many people will say, you know, the marketplace demands, and we compromise sometimes. Like some people, you know, when you're with the sharks, you swim with the sharks, you come home, you're very gentle. So I think we all have this conflict. I, I'll use the story from the biblical story of the, of the Miraglim, the spies. They didn't want to go into Israel. They wanted to stay in the wilderness. Well, even though they were great men, and they knew God said, go into the promised land. So one of the beautiful explanations is because they were spiritual people. In the wilderness, they were protected by the clouds of glory, by the bread from heaven. They didn't have to work. They didn't have to earn any money. So they like an Akolel. They're studying Torah all day. Why would they want to go and now have to plow the land and work the fields and make sure the rain is falling and all the struggles? So in many ways, they wanted to be like live an ascetic lifestyle, but that's not the way God planned it. God takes a soul and sends it into this world. 
So Judaism, classic Judaism, teaches us that it's about integrating matter and spirit, which in language we're using here, integrating money and using it for the right purposes. Think of the temple, the holy temple. It's essentially was made from it's literally gold, silver, copper. That's money, real money and other materials. But what God says is take the material world, the money that you've earned, and turn it into a sacred place. Make, create a home for me in your money. I don't just want a home for you on your kipper in a synagogue or when you're praying or when you're studying Torah. I want a home in your very material life. So that's the ultimate paradox because there are, there are philosophies and schools of thought that say, you know what? The, the meek shall inherit the earth. They actually see poverty as the way to God. You know, and then, and then there's others that say, no, wealth is a, very, is a blessing. And you find in Judaism, Judaism doesn't say poverty is the way. Judaism says, by all means, be prosperous, be successful, be wealthy, but make sure you remember that you are not a self-made person, that the wealth you have is because of God's blessings, and make sure that you channel that wealth and all its opportunity toward building a sacred environment in this world. So it's a, it's a balance and a challenge because it's much easier to sit in the kolel and the yeshiva where you're learning all day. To be in the material world and still maintain a spiritual integrity, that's the challenge that money poses. And let's stay on that topic. In America, the question people ask is, what is your net worth? What, what value do you have as it relates to finance? How much monetary value do you have? And I'm an American. I'm a Jew, and sometimes that does seep into my inner thoughts, right? If I'm financially successful, if I have a good job, if my company's doing well, I'm doing well. If it's not, it completely takes over. And when I drive home and work isn't going as well as it should, I find it, or at least erroneously, find it to be a reflection of me. Obviously, that's the wrong mindset, but let's talk about that. Of course, I have a topic, a lecture that is very popular. It's called, Is Your Self-Worth Defined by Your Net Worth? Really touches upon what you're saying. So let me just share a story. I was um, in 1998. The crash happened, the economic crash. I was in London, in Canary Wharf. As Divine Providence would have it, I was scheduled to give a lecture, a lunch and learn lecture, in the, in the financial, in Canary Wharf was the, basically the financial district in England and in London. And the title was, Is Your Self-Worth Defined by Your Net Worth? And they usually expect around 100 people. But what happened that morning, Lehman Brothers closed down. So instead of 100 people, I had 2,000 people. 2,000 because they were all laid off. So they all had plenty of time. So lunch extended quite long. And, I, and it was like amazing that the topic was, is your self-worth defined by your net worth? And here, suddenly, everybody's laid off. They don't know what their future holds. You know, I'm sure they had some money that they collected, that they saved. But it was a tremendous topic here. When you're fired and you suddenly, the income yesterday that you were, you were relying on, so what is that, as you said, does that reflect that I'm a failure? And I really spoke about that. So I said, you know, uh, Warren Buffett puts it this way. You don't know who's been swimming naked until the tide is out. You know, so now the tide is out. When things are going well, everybody's happy. I'm prosperous. I have money and so on. But suddenly when, let's say money for whatever reason becomes difficult, now it's the real test of who you are. 
Are you going to become less noble or less refined? You're going to become a worse husband than father? Remember, just as they say in investments, you have to diversify. Diversification also includes that not all your value goes into one uh, basket. You also have a family and you have, and you have children and you have values and you have a Shabbos. We know Shabbos is not a day when we do monetary exchanges. So what is that all telling you? That you have many baskets, many things to fall back on. And anyone that defines their entire self-worth by net worth, in my opinion, is in for a big collision. Even if God blesses them with a lot of wealth, but it's just a matter of time. You know, you age, things happen, and let's say, God forbid, the health goes. Now I can't work. Because at the end of the day, money, let's be honest, is temporary. You know, the money is not eternal. Money will, just as it accumulates, it could also dissipate, which is why so many people are insecure about it. As much as you have, you'll see, as much as you have, people still want more. We all know that um, it's, it's temporary. It's, it's mortal. It does ultimately dissipate. And it's only the eternal values that really give you a true uh, immortal, I would say, a foundation. I find it ironic when you see Prudential and others, they call it securities. You know, the, the prudential rock. Mm-hmm. They call it securities, as if this is going to give you. Yes, money gives you a security to some extent, but money does not give the security. Money does not guarantee that you'll have love in your life, does not guarantee that you'll have values in your life. If you have values, then money can be used in that direction. You know, money can create a distortion. You know, people, it's a, let's be honest, money can be a drug. When you're pursuing money as an end in itself, it's a very powerful force because you you claim. And you feel with money, I can buy anything. I can buy happiness. I can buy love, which isn't true, but that's what we feel. And that's why, especially, I think one of the most beautiful things in Judaism is the concept of the tzedakah, because it's the only redeeming element of how you do not let money become pure greed and pure narcissism. You have to have a self-regulated element to understand the money you were blessed with is in order to make a better world. It's not an end in itself. And we see that. You see families that are, are wealthy, for instance, when they don't have that in place, what does money usually do to their family? It rips them apart. I mean, there are statistics show that wealthy families within a generation or two, either they don't talk to each other or they lose the money. Because if, you, if the values are not more powerful than the money, unfortunately, money can become a real dangerous force. A brief pause to tell you about Kol Chabad, an amazing group of people based in Israel and around the world making a big difference to the people in Israel. After the horrific attacks on October 7th, Kol Chabad jumped in and literally saved the day. They gave out food cards to families who were hit very hard by the attacks. Families of hostages received an extra card holding on to hope for their loved ones. And now we're seeing some hostages come back, use those Kol Chabad cards, for groceries, it's real, real need, and they need people like us to support. So they're helping the soldiers, the families, food cards. It's our job to help them help our friends and family in Israel. And for those in Beersheba, they have a new supermarket open where you can use Kol Chabad's food cards. Specific, you can't even walk in if you don't have the Kol Chabad food card, but they're giving them out. So it's it's a special dedicated supermarket They're doing things. They're not just playing the old playbook. They realize times are changing and they're there for people. So they need our help, right? They're doing great work. We have to do our great work to help support them. Visit kolchabad.org slash kosher money. 
Give what you can. It could be $18, $36, $1,800. The key is to give, give, give. The link's in the show notes. Visit, click around the website. You'll learn a lot. They really, really do a lot. Clothing, shelter, um, support, right? People don't have who to talk to. They're there. They have centers all across from the north to the south. Really proud to be a partner with them in this. So join us. Give to Kol Chabad. Click the link in the show notes while you're listening to this wonderful episode of Kosher Money. Now back to this week's episode. You hit on my next question is, what can people do practically not to get lost in that? And one option or one solution is giving tzedakah and transforming the money into something more spiritual where it shows your values and teaches your children those values. But what else can people do practically not to get lost in that rat race mentality? Well, I think what you said just now, teaching our children charity from a young age, let's, let's amplify that a moment. It really is teaching our children that we're here to be givers more than takers. Not just the amount of money you give. It's that you know that whatever you're blessed with, you should share. And that's not just money. It can be your intelligence, your time. A needy person needs a kind word. You're a busy guy. No, you go out of your way. So I think inculcating in our children from young age that idea, I mean, which is so fundamental in Judaism, you bring guests to your table on Shabbos. You know, the children see that our parents, no matter what level of wealth, are always in a mode of giving and sharing. It just creates an attitude that it's not just me, 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 acquiring and hoarding and gathering, but you are also here to give. And actually, that's the priority in life, is to give. You have a little, give a little. That's why it's interesting. There's a mitzvah even for a poor person as a mitzvah to give charity. An evian, literally a person who's complete penniless, because there's the dignity of giving. That giving gives you dignity. To say I'm so poor I can't give is not something that we accept because what do you mean? Everyone has something you can give. And if you say that you give, give nothing basically means you're worthless and that's not true. So the idea of giving is actually psychologically a healthy thing. It means you have the confidence to give. I find many people are very insecure. That's why they don't give because they feel if they don't hold on to it, I'll become less. And people who are very secure have no problem. I'll give because I, I'm not defined by my uh, amount that I have. Charity is also an attitude. It's a mindset. So that to me is critical. Obviously, it also includes monetary. Like we see before you pray every morning, make sure you put a penny in a charity box. You show your children to do the same. And that goes a long way because when they grow older, they realize we're not just here to take. We're here to share and to give. Uh, other things, I think in general, recognizing that when you're successful, you know, there's an expression in the Torah, don't think that it's you're self-made, that it's all yours. Recognizing that your gifts are blessings from above. Yes, you made the effort and God chose to bless you, but it's not yours. And that idea, parents and families that have that sense, it's, it transfers over to children. So that means that no matter how wealthy you are, Always know, be humble. Don't get arrogant. I'm not saying it's easy. I've seen people who once were, had no money, they made a lot of money and they became very arrogant. They think they're better. And there are others that do not change because the humility stayed with them. And now I have more opportunity, I'll give more. I've not been tested that way, So, but uh, there are people who I have. It's not, not yet. Not yet. I counsel people. So I know there are people who are you know, high net worth people tell me, it's more than just that I made a lot of money. It's now I don't trust people. Do they talk to me because they want to be a friend of mine or because they want something from me? My own friends became friendlier because I'm wealthy. 
In other words, they, their perception of me has changed. So you become cynical. Like you don't know who's who, who really is your friend, who's not your friend. And it's very lonely. I'm, I was just speaking to a guy, he's a billionaire, and he tells me, very lonely life. Because everyone I speak to, I don't know what they want. They always, I always feel there's an agenda. There's strings attached. And I said, you don't have one person in this world. He says, almost no one, because even my children, for all I know, you know, they know if they're on my good side, they may get more money. So there I would advise, you have to introduce some spiritual values into your life. If you're just business, business, it's ultimately very difficult to uh, discover. You have to have uh, someone you study with, someone you talk to, a mentor. You have to have uh, heartfelt relationships in your life or else the money can become a very, like an ivory tower. So you may be living in a, in a palace, in a, in a gilded cage, but it's still a cage. And you don't want to lose relationships. One selfish solution for this billionaire is to give it all away. Well, yeah, and, uh, but nobody's gonna give it all away, right. you know? And that's the challenge, it's true. I wonder if that's ever led somebody to wanna go back to their life, right? Someone wins the lottery. And that's one of the, not that I'm ever in that position, but that's one major concern I have if I ever had that. I, I wouldn't know who my friends are anymore and I don't know if I would want that. Well, I would say this, if you ever make it, and anyone listening to this, before you make the money, say to yourself and to God and to the people you love, I have a vision. I'm going to, God blesses me with money. It's not just going to be have a private plane and have homes all over the world or whatever it may be, and even provide for my family, but I'll build something with it. I think if you make a commitment beforehand that you're going to build something, a mishkan, you're going to build a temple, and that can be build a hospital, build a school, build a new project that's close to your heart. I think if you have that in mind, you already have a direction where to channel that money. So it's not just giving charity, it's actually, why don't you build something with it? I got the idea actually from Rockefeller, because John Rockefeller Jr. writes about his life. He says, I had all the money in the world for my father, who established Standard Oil, that's the Rockefellers. And he said, I didn't need to earn any money, because whatever I could earn, my father earned more than I would ever earn. And my life was worthless. But what am I going to accomplish in my life? And he single-handedly came up with the idea of creating foundations of how to give away money, creative ways how to give away money. And that became his mission. He created charitable platforms, charitable outlets. And uh, I found that to be fascinating. He found purpose in how to give away money. And this became the standard that today, what we talk about foundations and other ways that people give away is a lot based on Rockefeller using the, in his ingenuity, and again, he didn't need to earn money, so it was, it's also, you need wisdom how to give it in a productive way, and, and so on. So I think it comes down to understanding, that maybe this is the best way to put it. You came to this world not to become rich, not to be wealthy. You came to this world to fulfill a mission, a divine mission that you were given. No matter who you are, no matter what happens in your life, that mission is always yours. And that's what gives you the true self-worth. That's beyond money. Because if you don't know why you're here, you can have all the money in the world. And where's it going to go to? So for the moment, you'll be rich. You know, there were the pharaohs of old. There were monarchs. You know how rich they were? I remember I visited Petersburg in Russia. You know what kind of wealth the czars had? So you go there to the museums. I mean, it, it's beyond. It's trillions of dollars of, of, of value. But it's empty. 
All it is is a museum. There's no children. There are no grandchildren. There's no legacy. And then I visit some of the shtetls in Russia where there's no wealth at all, but it's saturated with, with the Torah that they taught, with families that have a lineage that are continued to affect the world. So I wrote an article then. I said, where everything is nothing and nothing is everything. So money creates the illusion while you have it, it looks like you're the most powerful. But let's see a generation or two or three later. If it didn't build something that perpetuates value, Avram Avinu, Abraham was very wealthy. But what, what do we know about him? The, the kindness that he did, the family that he built, and that we are his children and grandchildren. The Talmud puts it, money creates the illusion that if I have it right now, it's more important than anything that's eternal. But the fact is we know nobody can take their money with it to the next world. There's nothing eternal about it. The only eternal thing about money is what you build with it. You know, the, you know the famous story with Moses Montefiore? A very famous one, but I'll share it. He was once asked by Queen Victoria of England. They were friends. And he was a major wealthy man, Montefiore. All the Montefiore you find in the hospitals and in Israel was built by, by Moses Montefiore. So she asked him once, Sir Moses, what is your net worth? So he said, I'll get back to you. I'll calculate it. She was curious. He came back and gave her a number. And she said, you mock me. I personally know you're worth much more than that. She said, no, your majesty, that's my real value. I, you asked me my net worth. You didn't ask me how much money I have in the bank or my investments. Remember, all the money I own could easily be lost. Bad investment, a war could be confiscated, could be stolen. The only money I really have is the money that I use to build the institutions I built. That's the number I gave you because that's forever mine. I built something with it. So it's not the amount that I have, it's the, what you did with it. But you need to have a special, uh, I guess, personality to appreciate that because money is, as I said before, it's a drug. You, you know, you get drunk on it. And when you're drunk, you don't see the big picture. As humans, we do a very good job at forgetting that the world is temporary, right? Exactly. Is there anything we can do to remind ourselves? Sometimes it takes a, a disaster, a plague, um, but I don't know if it has to come to that. I don't know if it has to be extreme. What can we do practically to remember what's most important in this fleeting life? No, the, the expression is in these th situations, you can't build an army during a war. What do I mean by that? You know, when, once the storm strikes, you can't start reinforcing the trees in the forest. They better be strong beforehand. Just like a storm at sea, the ship that will survive it is strong beforehand. So the first thing you can do is before you have all these challenges and tests of wealth or other success, to infuse in yourself and in your family eternal values from the, from the earliest age, because you have that in place, those foundations, then whatever happens in life, including the success you have, which can seduce you into thinking the temporary is so powerful, but you already have the eternal in place. That's why, in my opinion, the best way is preemptive. Now, after the fact, let's say someone doesn't have those eternal values in place. You know, I always wondered when I was a child, I used to ask my father, why do people commit suicide after the stock crash in the 20s? Why would someone commit suicide? Because they lost their money. They still have life. They still have their family. And always, like, as a child, you wonder, is it money? Like, you know, you're ready to die because you lost your money? I mean, it sounds like insane. 
But then you come to realize that if the money becomes everything about you, that's your identity, my identity is gone. I have no value. My shame, everything was about my wealth, my status, my class. The best and healthiest thing is to teach ourselves and our families that it's about your your purpose, your mission, and these eternal values. So then when money comes your way, you already have context. It's very difficult to do afterwards. Once a person makes money, you hear all these stories about people who won the lottery. In many cases, it's very sad endings to their story. Not just a matter whether they were able to use it, because they were not used, they were not ready for it. Suddenly, suddenly have $800 million, you won in a lottery. You know, you're not psychologically prepared for it. Everyone now comes running after you, and you're probably going to be taken advantage of, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's like anything in life that you have to prepare beforehand. You don't wait till that challenge comes. Now, like you mentioned, once it happens, unfortunately, the biggest wake-up call is usually through loss and tragedy. I met an individual, who, very, very wealthy man. His children did not speak to him. He was estranged from his children because basically he bought their love with money. He was a busy man. And he would throw them gifts. So you can imagine how, well, how, much, how long that lasted. And as soon as he stopped giving money, they didn't show up. So they got estranged. And I asked him, I said, to get your family back, would you give away all the money in the world? And he wasn't able to say yes. He said, that's a, a difficult question to answer. So I said, you telling me that you, not having your children is not worse than losing all your money? I mean, and I pointed out, I mean, that's a distortion of, of course, you know, most of us would think that's like crazy. What do I need all this money for if I don't have children and grandchildren ready to speak to me? But that's what it does to the brain. It distorts things, you know. Real addiction. But, we, but let's not forget, again, that doesn't mean money is a bad thing. It means that money can without context. That's the key to always remember. It's always context. A short break from this week's episode. I am, yes, rocking my Twillery vest. I got my long sleeve polo. That's what I do. More and more first-time customers. I think over 1,000 people have purchased a Twillery product as a result of our custom promo for first-time users. Visit twillery.com slash koshermoney. Use promo code CHAI, C-H-A-I. It stands for 18. Get $18 off your first purchase of $139 or more. Someone just reached out to me today. He took advantage of the code, and then he went back and ordered more. I think he ordered seven shirts. Now, these shirts are not the cheapest. I, if you're looking for the cheapest shirt online, go to Google, type in cheapest shirt online. And I don't think Twillery is going to show up. That's because it's not cheap. It lasts. It has durability. And like I always say, if you're not in the market for a beautiful vest, a uh, long-lasting, comfortable shirt, short sleeve, long sleeve, they have these ear blazers I'm going to show you in a subsequent episode, then don't purchase Twillery, okay? It's meant to last. It's meant to be there for the long run. So there are cheaper shirts out there that may not last as long and may not be as comfortable. So you got to sort of balance the two, no different than how we approach other things. So if you're not in the market or cannot uh, make that happen right now, no pressure, just skip this ad and move on. And that's okay. And no shame in that. Okay, cool. Twillery.com slash kosher money links in the show notes. I really like this vest. I wear it. Sometimes it zips. Sometimes it's not depends on the day. I like the days where I don't have to wear the coat, although I do have a coat from them. 
I'm a paid spokesman. So, yeah. But I like the coat. I like the vest. Sometimes I wear them both if it's really cold. Um, but I just like the, the ability to be free. It's, a vest is cool because it's a coat without sleeves. I don't know if that's the official definition. Okay, I'm talking too much. I think they pay for like 60 seconds, but this is way over 60 seconds. So, you know, free airtime. Okay, back to this week's episode. On Purim in 1958, the Lubavitcher Rebbe asked the crowd of Hasidim, who wants to be rich? And the story goes, only five people raised their hands and he gave them a blessing that they should be very wealthy. And it's said to this day that those five people, those families are very wealthy. So number one, is that story true? It is. I believe it happened in 1955, but, okay. uh, but it was Purim, yes. It is true. What prompted the, the Rebbe to ask that? And why were people so hesitant to raise their hand, assuming there were more than five people in the room? Well, it's Purim. There's an expression on Purim, which means on Purim, someone extends their hand, you give him. That was the only day you don't make limits in how much you help others. That's why we give charity. We're just expansive, very open. And I guess it was what we call an ace rutzen, an auspicious moment that the Rebbe felt that uh, that there's there's an opportunity that Hashem will bless. And he said, he even said the following, he says, usually everyone's writing to me, you want blessings, I'm giving you now an opportunity. And he actually complained that only five people raised their hands. He said, here you have an opportunity. Why aren't you grabbing it? I think that why more that people were embarrassed, to be honest, standing in front of the Rebbe, Purim, they, you know, even though everybody wants money, they just, I guess it was more of embarrassment, like shame a little why they didn't raise their hands. I'm thinking if I was there, what would I have done? Right. It would be a dilemma. I can't, I can't explain it because the Rebbe was a very holy man. It's like a tzaddik is with you, you know. And so he's saying, okay, now is an opportunity. Not everybody had money on their minds. It's a tribute to the Hasidim. <laughs> We, we also think about money as a possible negative thing. Were they scared of the test or or if they raise their hand, they look almost as if they're chasing the physicality of That's it. That's probably more the latter. Right. You know, I don't know if they were afraid of the test, but it's an, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think if he did it today, he'd have many more than five. <laughs> right, right. I mean, the bills, <laughs> so the bills are, are, are a bit higher right now. I remember now. also in 1955, you're talking about many immigrants, people had just come to uh, the United States after the war. So it could be their heads were not so uh, immersed in that, but there were the five, and the, yeah, we know who they are actually, and they're wealthy till today. They are wealthy. <laughs> what industries people are going to write Real in? Real estate. Real estate. Yeah, diamonds. Diamonds. One okay. of them. Uh, I don't remember the others, but it was those things. Yeah. So speaking about the Rebbe, what were some of the top lessons the Rebbe shared as it relates to? finances. I'm sure we've covered some of the themes so far, but we'd be remiss, especially you've transcribed a lot of the speeches. Right. So I quoted before the Tanya, that's a major one, which I think is really critical because I, I once wrote a paper actually to sum up, I would say the Torah view on money, which of course included the Rebbe's ideas because it was based on Torah thinking. And the question I pose is Judaism, capitalist or socialist? You would put it in that context. Because on one hand, Judaism does not advocate that all your property should be given away to the collective. There is the concept of private property. And socialism, especially the Marxism and so on, advocates no private property. Basically, all the money should be collected in one collective, 
and everybody gets according to their needs. So Judaism does not advocate that. It's only the Kohanim, the priests and the Levites that did not own private property because they were public servants. So the community provided them. But the rest of the community, we had very wealthy people. So wealth is not was not considered to be a negative. So that concept, that uh, with socialism, which was so attractive to so many, which was a you know, perfect a utopian world where we don't have competition, is not a Jewish concept necessarily. So then, on the other hand, Judaism advocates charity and advocates sharing. As a matter of fact, almost all uh, civil rights and human rights and, and compassion and all the socialist agenda of helping for the, the less advantaged is a Jewish concept. So how do you uh, reconcile the two? And the answer is that Judaism is fundamentally a divine system that combines the best of both. The way it balances what uh, Adam Smith and capitalism calls the driving force of competition, which is in a way greed. And many, many, many criticize that. That's what Marx criticized, that ultimately capitalism will create greed and abuse and will basically uh, of the advantaged over disadvantaged. That was the real argument of socialism. That Judaism says, no, by all means, be successful, but you balance that by self-imposing over yourself the need to give stock, give charity. I would say it's capitalistic in its behavior, but it's socialist in its charitable uh, commitment. Um, and that's what makes it so, so beautiful. In other words, it's, it's wealth that you generated, but you, you don't own it. And here I'll quote something from the Rebbe, which really comes from Hasidic thought. King David asks Hashem, asks God, why did you create the wealthy and the poor? It says in the verse, you have all the golden, you have all the gold and silver. So why didn't you distribute it equally? So we wouldn't have social classes. That's what he asks. And God answers, interesting answer. He says, if I did that, who would do kindness? There'd be no need for kindness. Everybody has what they need. So here I'm giving the opportunity for those that have more to be kind, which is a fascinating response. So this is explained the following way. That means that in truth is, everyone should have gotten equally. But God chose some people and trusted them that they would be wise enough. I will give you more as a pekodin. It's not yours. I'm giving it to you because I trust you that you will share it and through that bring kindness into the world. So really wealth is seen then, not owned by the wealthy person. It's God entrusting him or her with that ability. That's why the Talmud says, Rebbe, the great Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, honored the wealthy. So everybody asks, what does that mean? One second, he was... You know, how, how do you like when the rabbi honors the wealthy people and, 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 and neglects the others? She said, because he honored the wealthy because he saw in them that God trusted them. Not because he honored the money they had. It's because God trusted them with that money that they would share. That was his honor. And I, I think it's a revolutionary concept in how to look at finance. So this is one of the main lessons of from the, regarding how to look at finance. As far as more specifics, I'll share one several times a year in the late 80s. Lubavitch Rebbe would meet with um, what they call the Machni Yisrael Development Fund. It was a development fund that would give, you know, wealthy people gave, they would bequeath uh, grants for the Rebbe who would distribute it to the Shulchim, to other Chabad institutions. So the Rebbe spoke to them. He once said, very interesting insight, he said to them once the following. He said, you would think that to succeed in business, you have to completely focus on the business. And if you 
for example, middle of the day, go off to Dava Mincha, the afternoon prayer, it's like distraction from your business involvements. And the Rebbe said, that's not the case. The key with focus is that whatever you're doing, you do it with complete intent. So if you take off the middle of the day, even 15 minutes to pray, and you do it with complete intent, it'll give you the power to do the same in your business. So it's not about how much time you invest, it's that quality time. And the idea of quality time, even if it's in a spiritual activity, will add quality time and focus in your businesses. I found that to be very interesting uh, insight. Someone sent me this, uh, this gift, and it's a letter from the Rebbe, and it says, don't worry so much about business. More betachon, more parnasa. And Beautiful. that's, yes. in, in, in essence, what you're saying. We want to put it up in our new studio that we're building, but that's essentially the, that's the message. I know who he wrote that to, a businessman in Manchester. Yeah? Yeah. Wow. So something that I struggle with personally is that when I'm praying to God and we mention health and happiness and everything that's good, and then we get to finances, you know, maybe it's akin to not raising your hand when the Rebbe says, who wants to be rich, but, but, but you know, with God, when we, we say, I need this and this and this, when it comes to money, I say, mm, just give me health and happiness and whatever you're able to, to squeeze in on the, part, uh, on the wealth side, that's good. I don't know if it's, it's guilt. I don't know if it's maybe I, I don't feel worthy enough to get the full package. So I, I want what I think is more important. How should I be thinking about that in my silent prayer to God? It's a very good question. I, I think, I, look, I, there's some people have Tivus moment, they call it, you know? They just have a uh, desire to make money. They just love money. Uh, everywhere they see money, dollar signs, you know. Some of us are not that way. And I'm not, dis you know, everybody has their desire. Some people like to eat. Some people like to travel. Some people, some people like money. And there's, I think, a certain guilt for many of us. If I'm standing before God, I'm going to ask for money. I'm going to ask for nachas. I'm going to ask for joy for my children. I'm going to ask for health. I'm going to ask for things, you know, to, to, am I fulfilling my mission in this world? Am I doing what you want me to do? On the other hand, Judaism is not embarrassed. Wealth is a blessing. Throughout the Torah, you see wealth is a blessing. It's not like, um, what does Tevye say in The Fiddler on the Roof? He says, I understand poverty is not uh, something to be ashamed of, but it's also not something to be proud of, you know? I forgot the exact words. So wealth is a blessing. So I think you have to know your own intentions. You know, I today, if I was praying and asking, I would say, bless me with, not money, I don't need it for my own personal desire, you know, indulgences. Bless me with enough money so I can do what I might fill my mission properly. Because if I had more money, I could reach more people on YouTube and other ways, as it is. And I, and I mean that sincerely. It's not like a trick, you know, give me more money and I really mean for my own personal needs. Because I do have a cause. And if you have a cause, I think it's, it's, it's less skill-driven. But if you really don't have a cause, you're just asking for money, you have to ask yourself, so if Hashem says to you, okay, I'll give you a lot of money, what are you gonna do with it? And what's your answer? just that you can be able to be more comfortable, you could be more indulgent. I would suggest the following, ask for money, but also tie it to a cause. Say, oh, give me the money and here's some of the things I'm gonna do with this money. And I think it makes it a little easier. We'll be right back to this week's episode, but first, a message from my friends at the Donors Fund. Picture this, you just closed a significant deal. You're thinking about giving back, right? Where do you put your charity dollars? And how could it be most effective? 
Dun, 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 dun. Welcome the donors fund, right? They represent a very unique intersection where you have finance on one side and charity giving on the other. So it's not just a place to donate. It's where your generosity can grow potentially before it reaches its final destination, right? So you did that lucrative deal. You have that urge to give tzedakah, but you're not exactly sure where to support just yet. So the donors fund has a solution. You can park those funds not just where they're held, but they're actively growing potentially with the donors fund. So they launched an investment portal. I just took a look at it where you can discuss with them in-house investments. You can see the potential returns on your contributions. It could be a large sum. It could even be a small sum. You know, you, you don't have to have millions and millions of dollars to do this. So think about the donors fund as a high caliber bank or financial institution where you have a wealth manager who's strategically investing your funds and trying to help you get the most out of your charity so they, they align perfectly with your financial goals, okay? Their platform allows your donations to be invested through various portfolios managed by leading financial institutions. That means your contributions can potentially increase in value tax-free, giving you the freedom to decide when and where they can make the most impact. I like that charity that grows when you're not sure exactly where to put it. So you're in essence running your charity like a business, fully focused, maximum impact potential. Visit thedonorsfund.org slash kosher money today. Explore how they can transform your giving, your success into a powerful legacy. Thedonorsfund.org slash kosher money. They're catering to every level of giving. So you'd be surprised, small, large, somewhere in between, they've got something for you. And now back to this week's episode. Let's say someone wakes up in the morning and I don't usually remember my dreams, but in the dream, I was driving the nicest car. I had the biggest house. I didn't even have to work because I had millions in the bank, right? I jokingly tell the dream over to my wife and she goes, you think it means something? You know, is it, sometimes dreams are bad and we try to keep hush-hush about it. But what does Judaism say about dreams? Is there something that we should be thinking deeply into or it's just a mishkebabble of the previous day? Well, let me break your question into two parts. First is, should we dream to have all the money in the world that we don't have to work? I would say that may not be what you want. Because there's a very, the Talmud, in the, the Jerusalem Talmud has an expression that money that's not earned is called bread of shame. Because the fact is that a person desires one dollar of their own effort more than nine measures that they receive as a gift. There's something about the pride and dignity of earning a living. That's why in Zdaka even, the highest level of charity is giving a loan putting them on the feet, build a business. Listen, there is the concept of charity, but even greater is help someone get on their own feet rather than just support and keep them in a poverty level. Uh, you know, give you money to make more money, so to speak. So the idea that people have that fantasy, I'll have enough money, I could just sit on the beach all day, then, then why are you here in this world? God didn't put you in the world to just lounge and just uh, you know, languish in your own uh, the pleasures. Turns out the dream was a nightmare. 
right. the way you're describing but, but, but many people think that's a great dream, but that's not the case because a human spirit needs activity. You need to produce. You can ask God, don't make it difficult for me. Give me enough that I can be comfortable, that I can help my children, help them build their lives. You know, Unfortunately, I see people who, whose parents or grandparents or in-laws support them and they end up losing their personalities. They're not driven. They have no. They wake up in the morning. There's a guy that I know. He married into a very wealthy family. His father-in-law would throw all the money in the world to him. So I said to him, he asked me my advice. I said, work, live off the money you make at work. Take the money he gives you and put it into some trust account. Be able to pay for the weddings of your children, buy them a house, but don't survive on that. And he did that. And he thanks me all the time because you... It's the temptation is great. You know, I, I don't have to wake up in the morning. Why do I have to work? I, I have all the money in the world. That's not a gift. Because then you basically, it's the comfort zone that ultimately causes you to lose a sense of urgency, a sense of passion. So that I wanted to just react to that part. No, and it's a good point. Just to quietly interject, American culture now is retire early, retire at 30, 40, work so hard. You know, that culture and... What do they expect to do after 30? Obviously, if you turn your life into something great, great, but not work. If you've made enough money and you don't need to work, do not retire. So go work and study Torah all day. Go volunteer and help people. Do not go into a mode, I don't have to do anything. That's very unhealthy for the human spirit. A person must be, Adam a person was created to produce. When we don't produce and we don't produce fruit, it undermines our self-confidence, undermines everything about us. And above all, why are you here? You're put on, you know, on world for purpose. You're not here to just sit around. You know that joke, one of my favorites is this old guy sitting on a bench. He's all depressed. And another friend, of, one of his friends comes over to him. He says, why are you so depressed today? He said, my wife is very angry at me. So he said, "That's what, what's news? She's always angry at you. Now something special today. What happened? In the morning, she went to work. And she asked me what I'm going to do today. So I said, nothing. She told me, you said that yesterday, that you're going to do nothing. So I told her I wasn't finished, you know, doing nothing. You know, he had enough money. He doesn't have to do anything. Some people are trying to master the art of doing nothing. Of course, that's tragic. So now, to answer your second half of your question about dreams, I think like the Zodiac, fact is people are drawn to what we call exotica. We like the sensational. You know, what's, what does my dream mean? Did I reincarnate from some uh, frog or some other creature? The signs, do they tell me my future? We like the crystal ball. Frankly, all of that is, uh, is somewhat, I would call, juvenile. It's like trying to find magic pills to take care of your life. It doesn't work that way. Judaism is very much responsible life, which means, Tamim Tiyem Hashem be straight with God, do your work, be responsible. Now, does that mean that dreams don't have meaning? They have meaning. We have the stories in the Bible. Joseph was a dreamer. He interpreted dreams. We can't say that a dream doesn't have any meaning, but if you're going to live your life based on dream interpretation, that's not a responsible life. Talk about the Rebbe. Someone once came to Lubavitch Rebbe with saying, I'm having these dreams, and he wants the Rebbe to interpret them. So the Rebbe said, it's difficult enough to figure out what we should do when we're awake before we get to our dreams. Let's first figure out what we have to do when we're awake, and then we'll talk about dreams. So I would just contextualize it. 
However, that doesn't mean the Talmud says I mean, there's no dream without nonsense in it. And there's every dream has sometimes some prescience, some foresight. The problem is we don't know which part is which. So I generally say to people, figure out your life, what you can. If God wants to send you a message, he'll get the message to you. If it's a, if it's a dream, a repeated dream. So you have to always with a grain of salt because it's very easy to fall into that category that my dreams are going to determine my future. No, maybe, you know, someone will say, I'll say, go get a job, build your life, do everything you can before you start interpreting your dreams. If you don't have your life together, interpreting your dreams is not going to help you. I don't mean to be so... Uh, no, blunt. People like blunt. So the, the rabbi has a YouTube channel, hundreds of thousands of subscribers, and many of them are non-Jews, right? Yes. What has the rabbi learned about the non-Jewish world yearning for Judaism's insights, the wisdom? Has that opened the rabbi's eyes to things he, he hadn't seen? Well, I, I happen to always have been a universalist, if you wish to put okay. it. I grew up, of course, in a religious home, but I never saw Judaism as parochial and limited only for Jews. Obviously, there are mitzvahs that are Jewish-oriented, you know, Shabbat, tefillin, and so on. But I always saw the Word of God and the Torah as being a universal blueprint for life. So what I've learned, it's confirmed a truth that I always held close, but now I see it in reality, because that's what technology does. And that is that the teachings of Abraham, of Ramavino, Av Goyim, the Torah calls him, the father of all nations, is not just for Jews. The universal truths about love, about family, about values, about morality, are relevant to every human being on this earth. The idea that every human being was created in the divine image, and there are universal, what some call the Noahide laws, there are universal moral code that every human being has to live up to. Because I find when you're able to convey it, you know, if I, if I started speaking about the intricate laws of Shabbos, or, or Passover, I don't think most non-Jews or even many Jews would be interested in it. But when you speak about how it teaches you psychological tools, emotional tools, how to be a happier person, how to balance money and career, money and your personal life, suddenly all these boundaries disappear, meaning that non-Jews are just as eager to understand that as Jews. Maybe that's one of the reasons that everyone is obsessed with Jews you know, and especially today, because there's something about these almost 4,000 years of values that the Jews brought to, brought to the world that have shaped civilization. Let's be honest. All the values that the Western, or really the whole world cherishes, all originate in the Torah somewhere. So to me, it's not surprising. Technology has, has revealed that. Because once upon a time, I gave a class. So I had 30 people, 100 people. It was usually people in my community or in the Upper West Side or in Manhattan. You know, sometimes non-Jews came as well, but it wasn't that in those numbers. Technology, as you know as well, changes everything because now it's out there and anybody can watch it. I have far more non-Jewish following than Jews, but it's again, it resonates with them, the, the truths of it. And listen, you also have to be able to speak that language. Like if I spoke half Hebrew or half Yiddish, it would be prohibitive to most, mm -hmm. but not just the language. You have to be able to speak in very relevant terms. You know, we spoke about money right now. Most of what we said, not most, almost all, everything we said was really anyone can listen to. 
Why would a, a non-Jew benefit less than a Jew from it? Even though it may originate from Jewish teachings, but again, it's universal. These concepts, the idea of money and all its challenges and its gifts of transforming it into something, you know, transforming matter into spirit. So the rabbi is doing counseling, creating content online. If someone does have a question, a website to go to, a contact form, what's the best way to get in touch? And I imagine the rabbi does get quite a few. Oh, yeah. More than I can handle. So I have a nice, good team uh -huh. of people that help me, especially, as you can imagine, on YouTube, you get a tremendous amount of comments and feedback and questions. So I have an organization called Meaningful Life Center. Meaningfullife.com is really, I would say, the repository of all our content where you could find daily updated material on every topic under the sun across the spectrum of life. Uh, my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, is the basis of it, which really covers all the most important topics in life, personal, social, theological, faith-based. And uh, there, there's a forum where people could ask questions anonymously if they wish, and uh, try to provide as many resources as possible. You know, I like to call it universal life skills, how to live a more meaningful life, beginning with the idea that you have a unique mission. You are indispensable. There are 8 billion people on this planet, but you have a unique mission that you were given. And, and all your resources, including your money, including all, the, all your accomplishments are all part of the, the tools and blessings you were given to fulfill your calling. So it all begins with the calling. I'll just share this. Um, you know, people, I often ask uh, people, uh, you know, who are you? And they give me their business card. So I always say, that's what you do, but who are you? And many people will say, sadly, I've been doing it so long, I become what I do. You know, I am what I do, but that's not, it should be the other way around. What you do should reflect who you are, which goes back to the money. Your money should reflect your soul, not your soul should reflect your money. You know, it's imagine the ship, the captain should tell the ship where to go. The ship doesn't tell the captain where to go. But for most people, money is telling the person what, what to do, not the other way around. Even though we think my money, I can do whatever with it, but it's really driven by the, by the markets instead of by, you know, you're from the inside out. This has been insightful, enjoyable. I almost feel selfish one-on-one -on -one just sponging all this in, but hopefully we'll disseminate this to many hundreds of thousands, if not millions. I'm excited. I think we could do a round two uh, one of these days. Uh, my, my honor, my pleasure. It was great talking to you. Great questions. Good questions, hopefully elicit good answers. Wonderful. And uh, let's continue the conversation by all means. Wonderful. Pleasure being here. We'll put all the links in the show notes if anybody wants to reach out, uh, get the book. But uh, thank you so much for coming down to the studio on this busy day, and we really appreciate it. Thank you. And may you be blessed to use the airwaves to reach billions, not just millions. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Kosher Money. Phenomenal conversation. Head over to Reb Simon Jacobson's YouTube channel, Sort by Popular. You'll be blown away about what he says about dreams, zodiac signs, really cool stuff. Thank you to our friends at Living Smarter Jewish. If you're looking for finance guidance, you didn't get it in school. I can promise you that. Or if you did and you want more, God bless you. Reach out to them. They're helping so many people. Thousands and thousands of families have reached out. They do a really awesome intake. So if you're reaching out about uh, credit scores, right, you think that's what you need, 
They'll have a 15 minute conversation just to get a better handle on your financial situation. And then you'd be surprised. They do have some additional insights and coaching and it really goes a long way. So reach out, schedule time. You're not going to get an answer back in an hour. It might take a few days sometimes, but hey, sit tight. It's a free service. I just cracked my knuckle in the outro and livingsmarterjewish.org. Links in the show notes. Shout out to Zevi Dina, everybody over there. I also want to uh, mention, so Ben Shapiro is now America's number one rapper, which is kind of cool. I don't know how many of you are in the video audio space. I am open to changing our intro music, like something short, 10 seconds or so, 15 seconds, could be eight seconds, 17 seconds, probably a little bit on the long side, but I am open to changing it. So if you're, if that's what you do, reach out. You can uh, find me on LinkedIn connect with me there. And I don't know, maybe we can make something new on the intro outro side. Yaakov and the team just released L'Chaim Kids. It's a kids podcast network. And the first show, The Adventures of Zevi and Zaidi, is out. It's awesome. I love it. I want to actually do the voicing. I don't know if Yaakov listens to my outros, but Yaakov, if you're hearing this, or if you are listening and you're not Yaakov, record, screen record your phone and then send it to Yaakov and say, Ellie wants to be a voice on your new kids network. I think it's really cool. I think I can do voices. I'm really, I'm really talented as it relates to not talented things. So voices, I guess. There's not a lot of Jewish voice actors, but there are some. I think there's a market for it. Um, so we got that podcast. I actually just got off the phone with a new podcast host. You don't know anything about this. Um, we might have to fly down to Florida to start recording those episodes. So I'm excited about that. Thank you to our sponsors, Twillery, wearing their clothing, Kol Chabad, giving tzedakah and charity, and the Donors Fund, taking charity to the next level. It feels like a bank, but a good bank, not one of those old school banks like what banking should be as it relates to charity. Cool. So you want a tip, right? You listen to these outros and you want something that you could go home with. So I didn't actually prepare a tip, but I'm trying to think, what can I tell you? Oh, got it. Okay. There's a uh, an organization called the Jewish Entrepreneur. This is not a paid ad. They have um, mentoring, right? Let's say you own a business. You have to own a business. And they will assign you a mentor who's successful, has done it within your industry, and will guide you. They're not going to build your business for you. So if you're like, oh, free someone who can build my business. No, that's not what they are. But if you are in a position where you need mentoring or you want to mentor somebody, check out The Jewish Entrepreneur. I'm going to put the link in the show notes if I remember. But if not, just Google The Jewish Entrepreneur. It's like TJE. There's a URL. Highly recommend. It's free. Wow. And I've used them. Not an ad, not an ad. They're not paying. There's nothing like that. Um, really valuable service. And shout out to the mentors. If you are listening and you are a mentor, God bless you, man, or a woman. Okay, that's your tip. See, it's worth staying to the end. But we're not done yet. We're just getting warmed up. See you next week. It's actually two weeks. We release every two weeks. Bye. Living L'chaim.